quite honestly, we have outsourced our thinking. We have, over the years, outsourced our thinking to religion. Religion has taught us how to think what is good, what is bad. Government, society, the media has taught us how to think. They've taught us what's beautiful, what's not beautiful, how we should dress, how we should talk, what universities we should go to. And it's all rubbish, if you ask me. And rubbish is a very mild word for what I would normally say. Hello and welcome. This is Puneet Surana and you are listening to the Galata podcast. Galata is a word from the Indian language Kannada that means the noise caused by a ruckus. This podcast is about starting up while we are still in college, testing ideas, creating a team, building something worthwhile and adding value to other people's lives. Join us as we discuss the thrill of earning your first buck, tackling uncertainties, overcoming obstacles and delighting others. Most of all, the Galata podcast is about seeing, understanding and implementing so you can deliver on your audacious promise. My guest is a disruptive thinker, international speaker and author. She's a UK chartered accountant and certified intercultural specialist. She's been an active champion in the UK-India ecosystem and has been honoured with an order of the British Empire for services to trade and investment with India and has also been featured as one of the top 100 UK-India influencers. She brings bleeding-edge ideas to local markets for co-creation and implementation using methodologies that she has developed over the last 30 years, having worked in 20-plus countries. She is an engaging and passionate storyteller and curator who brings alive organizations and people by altering their mindsets and perceptions. So please... Join me in welcoming the founder of The Human Alarm Clock, the co-author of Let Me Hijack Your Mind, Vandana Saxena Poria. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. The usual first question I ask most of my guests is, what were the conversations around the dinner table when you were growing up? That's actually a very tough one because I grew up in the UK and my parents had moved to the UK in the late 60s. And we were living in this kind of frozen India at home. So my parents had come over with these Indian values and they were very frozen in them, whereas India had kind of moved on. Our parents Mm. hadn't. And it wasn't just for me, it was for all the Indian community in the UK that grew up in the 70s and the 80s. And so... A lot of the dining table conversation was dining table monologues by by dads, by dads. <laughs> you know, patriarchal, hierarchical, and how bad the UK was for immigrants, what racist experiences we faced. Because it was it was very commonplace when we were growing up to be, you know, kind of spat on or shouted at or, you know, sometimes physically you know, kind of hit, that was very normal. So that, I, I, you know, a lot of people think that growing up in the UK, a lot of people in India think, and including my own family, think, oh, you had a charmed life because you went Bahar 
But actually, you know, for second generation in the UK, it was, it was really not easy. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question. I, I would probably also add that it was always about studies. Where are you in your studies? This mark is not good enough, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And, and of course, there was you know, Mr. Pandey's son. Is now, doing, is now doing this and did you hear he got an A? He got an A and there's a lot of pressure now and, you know, it was the, those, I know it sounds really dreadful. No, there were some really good times as well. But the majority, I have to be very honest, the majority of our growing up years were, Beta, you must study hard because otherwise you'll never make anything in your life. Having said that, we did learn a lot about India, and I think that's also one of the reasons why I came to India, because I, you know, they did very much keep us in touch with what was going on here. We learned about the emergency. We learned about other things that were going on. What was happening both in so my mum's from Gorakhpur, hmm. which is 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 much smaller, and my father's from Delhi, and so you know there was always the juxtaposition of the two places and what was going on, you know, with family in both places. So, yeah, that's what we <laughs> spent a lot of time talking about. And were you really studious as a kid? No, no. So this we need, the, the really? major challenge was I had a straight-A student brother, right? Are you the younger one? No, he's the older one. Oh, oh, oh so it was worse. One, I'm yeah. the younger yeah, yeah. one, right? 18 months younger. Only 18 months younger. <laughs> And my brother was the brain box of the family, did all his exams, 10th and 12th, one year early, straight A's, went to Cambridge. Yeah. So, and then there was Bandana, who apparently had a higher IQ, but could not concentrate and didn't, you know, didn't enjoy just read, you know, words, boring textbooks. Black I, and white. Yeah. yeah. Black and white was a real problem for me. And. I discovered much later on that I had ADHD, but it wasn't diagnosed when I was a kid. And so ADHD being attention deficit, and I found it very difficult to concentrate. And my mind would always be wandering and going off into parallel places. So was I studious? I was very curious, yeah. but not studious. So I ended up not doing brilliantly until I was about 17, I think, 16, 17. When I suddenly hit on Tony Buzan mm -hmm. and Edward de Bono, and it was like, then I could color my notes and like do patterns and find causal relationships. And then everything started coming together. Did you have mind maps and all? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's exactly. Every, even now, when it, yeah. I, everything is mind maps. If, if you could see, you know, how I created it was totally through mind maps. Really? Yes. We, we will get into the process of the book. I yes. think it was a very rigorous yet random effort that led to something really interesting. You got it. How did you get into mind maps? Because it's very rare to find somebody who's into Edward de Bono and Tony Bozan. So as a kid, I, I had a high functioning anxiety and I also had asthma. And you can imagine what the house was like. So I was not a sporty kid. So when other kids were playing sports, I would read, but read things that I wanted to read. Which is usually fiction? Well, it started with fiction, but you yeah. know, one thing I have to say I really loved about growing up in the UK 
was that libraries were, were really part of our blood from the age of four. We have fantastic libraries in the UK. And even back then, and this is the 70s, I'm showing my age, but even back then, the libraries, there were sections in the libraries that were geared towards kids. So they had everything like kid size, you know, so you would go in and they had little chairs and they had these little boxes where they, they put the books. And, you know, kids' books, certainly in the UK at that time, were very colorful. Mm. And I still remember the first time I, I went to, you know, as an ADHD person, yeah. images are very, very important. Maybe I still yeah. remember going into that library and how silent it was. And my mom whispering to me, you can choose any book you like. And I was like, wow. look, <laughs> and so a candy store. It was the candy store. <laughs> and then it was religious. Yeah. It was religious. Every Saturday we would go to the library. Oh. And every school had a good library. And so I, I have to say I was fortunate enough and I was encouraged to explore. And so I picked up, you know, bright covers. Tony Buzan, Edward de Bono always had bright covers. Yeah. And I was just fascinated that these people. This was in the kids section. I know that. These were, were you randomly bumped into them, maybe. Gosh, I think they were in, they were certainly in the kids section. Ooh. They were in the kids section and they were there to get you to, to just think. I I can't even remember, but it was yeah. It, I I I really can't even remember where they were, but they changed the way you Oh my goodness, and how it really did. It got me to think in ways that I'd never connected things before. And then at school as well, they, they did start teaching us, I think when I was 13 or 14, you know, they taught us how to revise. So that was really good. You know, this whole concept of you have to, you can't just do the last minute. I know we all do the last minute, but actually I found that I couldn't do the last minute. I would never learn that way. You don't so, like being stressed or rushed. It wasn't so much that. I, mm. I liked to be able to recall my knowledge, even a long time afterwards. And I realized that if I did it the day before, I couldn't. And I can honestly say for me, you know, I remember stuff that I learned at school when I was 14. I still remember. I, I still remember about Bodicea. I still remember studying Australia and sheep shearing. I still remember studying the Green Revolution. You know, yeah. so... And and that was all stuff that I did when I was between nine and fourteen because I would reread my notes a lot. So I learned very quickly that three weeks before I would have to read it, and then two weeks before, yeah. and then two days before, and I would have to test myself in a certain way. And I think that's why I got through my chartered accountancy exams first time. It was because I I used that same philosophy. Yeah. So you made these mind maps and you yes. revisited them, and those yes. connections were because you're a parallel thinker. Yes, and. Wow. Yeah. You guys got to check out Mind Maps. Yes. Uh, that's the very reason I passed my 10th. <laughs> and I think Mind Maps are really yeah. good for entrepreneurs as well. To just get down your thought process of yeah. how things fit together and what's important. And there's some really great softwares available. Do you, on, do you use software or do you I, use hands-on? I don't. I still do yeah. hands. Yeah. But when I was running a publishing company, we used to use softwares. I don't know if those ones are still around today, but if you just Google it, you, yeah. you'll find them. 
and they're very, very easy to. to how, how are your mind maps like? Do you have a cloud in between with branches going everywhere? Yes, I do. I have branches and I have clouds and I have colors. Yeah. So I'll use different colors to denote different things. Usually in the interviews, I don't have blank sheets. Yes. I actually have mind maps. Oh, really? <laughs> and that's like yes. the icebreaker because guests have not really seen somebody walk in with a pad and mind map yeah. and a mic. <laughs> yeah. No, I think they're yeah. the best way yeah. to learn. And I also, because I have to do a lot of public speaking, I use, I use mind maps to understand what I'm going to speak about as well. Interesting how you bumped into something that made you enthusiastic about learning, gave you a channel to curiosity. It did. You know, one thing I'd like to get youngest son or young people to think about is... You guys. All of you. <laughs> yeah, you people out yeah. there. Is, is there a correlation between subjects that you dislike and the teacher and subjects that you love and the teacher? Because in my experience, I found a huge correlation. And the difference has been how a good teacher has taught you how to be curious. I, I had the most fantastic Latin teacher at hmm. school. Now, Latin is like Sanskrit, right? Who, who talks it? Nobody talks it anymore. And like, why would you ever read a book in it? But she made Latin so fascinating that I became obsessed with it. And she, she would say She made it come things, alive. Yeah, she made yeah. it come alive. She would be yeah. like, where does the word brain come from? Let's look at how it comes from this and this. And then you'd be like, oh my goodness, you know, it's made from falling and water. And then you just, you, you think about how, the, and then you think, oh, are there other words that are put together like that? And then you'd want to go and research it. And this, of course, was in the time before you couldn't Google anything. Yeah. You couldn't look up the internet. Yeah. So you would have to go to old books and look it up. And I, I'm so grateful for my Latin teacher because it helped me learn French. So I became fluent in French. And then much later, I, I went to live in Romania. And Romanian is a Latin-based language. So like literally within months, I was speaking Romanian pretty fluently. And then from mm. that, it was easy to understand Italian. And that gave me a base to then learn Slavic languages when I moved to the other parts. So, you know, I think having a teacher that really inspires you makes, makes all the difference. Wow. I'm sure every one of you have had a teacher like that. Yeah. Irrespective of which school, college mm. or university you've gone to and how many eyes they have in them, mm -hmm. I'm sure... Everyone has encountered one. Good teacher and bad teacher, you know? Yeah. I, and I remember it's usually like two is to ten ratio. And every, every ten teachers, you get two that are just outstanding. They click with you. Yes. Yeah, and I think your Latin teacher was... Yes. <laughs> she really... She, <laughs> like she's, she's like lit up right now. <laughs> very much so. Which concept do you want to jump into from the book? Wow. Well, we're on education, aren't we? So education versus edutainment. Yeah. That's, that's one that's very close to my heart because for the last 25 years, I've, I've spent, although I'm a chartered accountant, I've spent it in teaching and training and making subjects come alive for people because I felt that really, you know, the world of accountancy 
And banking is the most exciting. Is actually, it is actually very exciting. It's a very creative profession, but under. Yeah, and it's taught in a way that makes everyone think it's black and white, but actually there's a lot of color in between. So I think education is a good one. How how do you take something as complicated or as tie and die like figures and columns and rows and make it come alive? So, So here's the interesting thing. You're absolutely right. I mean, my daughter, who's 16, she was like, mommy, accountancy is just so boring. And I went, why? And she said, because it's all about numbers and I hate numbers. Yeah, I, number crunching. No, yeah. but here, here yeah. this is where I have to tell you, that's a fallacy. It's a fallacy. Okay. That's a fallacy. Of course, numbers are part of it. But think about what we do as accountants. What we're doing is we are, we're taking your businesses. Let's talk about your businesses. We have to understand what makes your business tick. We need to understand what's going to make you grow. What do you need to do more of to make your business grow? And what do you need to do less of to save on costs? Now, that's actually quite a creative process. It's not black and white. And, and thinking about how do you make it grow is, is the question. You know, if you do, so for example, if you're, if you're selling something, if you're selling pens, for example, it's not about how many pens you sold. It's, a, it's about what markets you're, you're selling in and how you're making it interesting for that market such that they want to buy. And, and that's actually the role of an accountant. Certainly in the West, I think in India, it's much more about tax and compliance. But in the West, an accountant is a business strategist. So they're taking the numbers and then they're saying, right, how do we subdivide these into categories that are going to help us make sense of how the business is doing? And then, and then you can rearrange those categories. This doesn't make sense to me. So let me try and do it slightly differently. And then you start thinking about, okay, so what's bringing in a profit? What could bring in a bit more of a profit? Where are my employees spending their time? How can I cut that time down? These are the questions that accountants actually answer. So I think, I think people have got the wrong view of what accountancy is because they're not using accountants in the right way. Hmm. It's like the stories behind the numbers. Absolutely. What stories the numbers say. The unfortunate thing that I notice with founders, especially first-time founders and especially family business entrepreneurs is that they don't really look at numbers. They have they have multiple balance sheets, one for the government, oh, yeah. one the real one. Yes. <laughs> and and that's the and one to show the society. Yeah. And the three different ones. Yes. And, and I think, and so this is really important. And so that's why I say I'm really glad that I did my accountancy studies in the UK because the UK is not so tax compliant driven. It's all about making you entrepreneurial. It's all about getting you to think about the numbers. And so the balance sheets that we look at are, are ones that, okay, what do we own and what do we own? Right. So in a balance sheet, that's fundamentally what it is. And with everything that we own, how do we swap that to make money? So it's a very different way of looking. It's not like, what's my revenue and what are my costs? It's saying, what is it that we own? Now, the thing is for an IT company, for example, you turn around and say, well, we don't really own anything. 
it's in the heads of people. Then you literally need to do a different type of balance sheet to think about what is your intellectual property and how are you going to sweat it? How are you going to make it work for you? Which is a very, very different way of thinking. What else do you think is the difference? Because it's fascinating how there's another episode. If you want to note, notice the nuances which we did with making at Forbes at 18. That's the title where a UK-based company had invested in an Indian firm, and in the balance in in the in the business in the business plan, they actually projected the salary increments and then made the investment. And salary increments for employees that hadn't even been recruited yet. Yeah. And that's like the sort of nuance which is very different from the way Indians approach business. Yeah, yes and no. So the thing is, you've got to get why, why the accounts are being produced. So our challenge in India is that, that we are very tax and compliance based. And so as a result, our accounting system is very tax and compliance based. It's not really about, it, it is really for the government. It's so that the government knows. Whereas really what you should be doing is looking at what is the soul of the business? What is, what is really happening in the business? And that, and, and that means that you need to look at a much wider variety of factors in order to really understand how the business is working. So what you're Go talking on about. That. So, so what you're yeah. talking about is when you're, when you're trying to get your company valued and you're trying to look at what is the present value of the future cash flows that are going to come to the company, you have to say, well, this is where we want to get to. We want revenues at, let's say, 25 crore. So how many employees are we going to need to make that happen? And what kind of salaries are we going to have to pay them to make that happen? Now, if that's in three years time, then what do we need to yeah. do in one year's time to make that three years happen? And, and so you have to work backwards and not think about what am I paying to the government? No. What do I actually need for my business to work? That, that's a very different approach compared to how founders look at their bank balance, the present yeah, bank balance, and then decide the next transaction, the next step. Yeah. And I think that is a challenge. I think yeah. unless you're thinking two to five steps ahead, what will happen is you're always going to be, in English, we say treading water. You're always thinking, oh goodness, this next expense is coming up. What revenue am I going to get in to pay that expense? That's actually a very dangerous way to run a business because you're, you're, you're basically only doing what's needed to get you to the next place. Whereas what you need to be doing, and, and this is when you take on any kind of work, you know, so for example, I've seen this a lot in training companies. You, you know, you start out by saying, I'm, I'm going to do training in banking and financial services. And then a banking company will come to you and say, Oh, actually, we need something on insurance because we need to understand the interplay between banking and insurance. And you go, Well, that's kind of close to banking. So let's do that. Mm. But what's happening is you're going away from your primary product which is banking and financial services. And then they say, oh, but those people also need presentation skills. And then you justify it to yourself and say, oh, but they need storytelling for financial numbers. So let's do that. But what's happening is you are going away from your core business. You're doing things around the edge. And that's when you start realizing that you are spreading yourselves too thin 
And if you had stuck to your core business, maybe you had less business coming in, but it would have been more profitable. So those are the kinds of things Mm -hmm. as a business you need to be thinking about. The courage to say no is really, really, really hard. Yes. Especially in the initial thousand days. And in the first thousand days, those of you that learn to say no are the ones that are going to make it to the 2000 days. Really. Which is, which is a very, very, very rare, rare uh, group, mm. at, least, at least in India. Mm. I think across the world, to be honest, Bunny. Yeah, yeah. I, I love... So, boys and girls were discussing this book, Let Me Hijack Your Mind, by Alik Padamsi and Vandana. And the first words of the book is dedicated to my favorite people, the youth of India. Because you're still talking about no. What are some ideologies and values that you grew up with, the old India ideologies and values in UK in the 70s that you had to say no to over time? <laughs> and what did you adopt instead? What did you replace oh, it gosh. with? Oh gosh. The biggest no was to the patriarchal hierarchy. You know, the, the biggest challenge in businesses, and this is no offense to men, but we live in a patriarchal, hierarchical society. And it's what, what they say that goes. And I found over time, because I got into very senior positions very quickly. So I sold my first company when I was 27. And I started running the international division of a listed company. And I had to go to different countries set up different offices, get in new business. So I was dealing a lot with men. I mean, in fact, if I think about those 10 years in Eastern Europe, I, you know, I can rarely think of a meeting that I had with a senior woman. Gosh, I've just realized that. Wow. And one of the challenges was they would belittle me. They'd be like, you know, you're not really experienced enough to understand this. That's patriarchal hierarchy. That really is, you know, you're not good enough. We're older, we're wiser, you have to listen to us. And so I got into the, you know, really what happened around the dot-com time, which is when the young upstarts came in. I got into that mentality maybe eight years before it all hit because I was saying, actually, you're wrong. I was one of the first people in the world to be trained up on something called international financial reporting standards, which the world moved to in 2005, but I was doing it in 96, 97. And so I had a head start and I could actually say to people, no, you're wrong. That isn't how you should be accounting for something. This is how you need to do it. And so that was, I think, the first that I threw out that actually you may be older than me and I respect the fact that you're older. But actually, when it comes to this subject matter, I know it much better than you and you have to accept that. Yeah. I, I think a lot of us think we're too young for startups or we're too young to do things, but that's so not the case. So what did you replace this with? That I'm also the subject matter expert and I'm at par? No, no, not at all. No. I was really, okay, can I recount one Little incident that happened when I was younger that changed You're my for life. Permission. <laughs> I'm asking for permission because no. the th- <laughs> okay. I won't say anything then. 
I'm like, no to the asking for permission uh, bit. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so this relates to the asking for permission. And it relates to why I live in India. So when I was four, I came to India with my mother and brother. So I was four and my brother was five and a half. And at that time, direct flights to India were incredibly expensive. So we couldn't afford it. So we came via Syria, Damascus. And I remember, you know, mum getting us ready for the flight. And she said, no, you can't misbehave because I've got both of you and daddy's not here. So you, you have to be easy with me. But for a child, you know, an eight or nine hour flight to Syria and then a five or six hour stopover. And then another five or six hour flight. It was a lot to handle. So I was exhausted, but it was like, I have to be good for mummy. I have to be good for mummy. And I remember us arriving in India, in Delhi, in July at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning. And at that time, they didn't have the drawbridges that came to the play. So they would open the door. Mm -hmm. And I remember the moment they opened the door. Because as soon as they opened the door, we got this whoosh of like really hot, humid air, which I'd never felt before. Because remember, I've been brought up in England, which was cold, right? And and even in the summer, we didn't really have summers. I mean, summers went up to 18 or 20 degrees, and that was a good summer. So it was this heat, and I'd just woken up, and I was disoriented, and everyone was hustling and bustling to get off the plane. When we got off the plane, there were these smells that I'd never smelt before. I mean, it was like, you know, we used to leave all the rubbish out. And so it was not a pleasant smell back then. Remember, this was yeah. the 70s. And then I got into the airport terminal and it was so unlike England. Nobody waited in a queue. Everyone was pushing. And, you know, I hadn't slept and I was just in tears. I didn't, I was trying to, you know, mum was trying to hold on to us and I was holding on to my brother and all these people were so much bigger than us. So it was, it was extremely difficult. Then we get out of the airport and it's even more packed. I'd never seen so many people in my life and I'm little mm-hmm. and all these relatives were picking me up going, they used to call me Wendy. Oh, Wendy. And they were pulling my cheeks and I didn't know who they were. And I was just crying and crying. And I just went silent and I was looking around and I could see lots of beggars. And they used to have these steel bowls and there, there were the old Besar coins that were like plastic. And I remember the sound of them, you know, and they, and these people were pulling up my leg going, Bidi, Basado, Basado. And I was so disoriented. So for two days, I just went silent. I couldn't mm-hmm. understand this world. And I was really upset by the poverty. I'd never seen poverty before in England. It was kind of hidden in the UK. You might have seen the occasional homeless person, but that was it. Anyway, after two days of not eating and crying, my grandmother said, what's wrong? And I just said, this is a horrible country. You people, people are poor and it's not nice. And she said, do you think they're unhappy? And I said, yes. And she said, Janul. And she took me outside our ancestral home in Delhi, in Delhi University campus area. And there, there was a beggar that used to sit outside our house. Mm-hmm. And he like literally didn't have an arm. And she said, ask him anything. So at four years old, I looked at him and I said to him, uncle, come to England. 
we'll treat you well. You can stay in my home. And he looked at me and he goes, Beta, when you go to sleep at night, what do you see? And I said, I see my mummy kissing me. And he said, no, no, what's the last thing you see? And I thought about it and I said, I see the ceiling. And he said, do you know what I see? I see the stars and the moon. Why would I swap that to live in a cage like you? <laughs> now that, Buddy, had such an impact on me at the age of four. I think at that, in that moment, now articulating it, I learned the difference between spiritual wealth and material wealth. I made my parents sleep on the roof that night. I wanted to see, and when I saw the stars, and remember this was Delhi yeah. back in the 70s, when you could see everything, there was no pollution. It was incredible for me. You know, wow, there are all these stars. And my mum my had told me that they're all planets. And I was like, I wonder if there's a little Vandana living on that one or that one. And, you know, all these, as a kid, you know, you have these crazy imaginations. And I think that was the time when I learned mm -hmm actually just listen to people so you said do i treat people at par this is the long answer to your short question and that is that i just listen i love talking yeah. to people i talked the cleaners at the airport i talked to royalty i talked to ministers i just want to talk to everyone and i want to understand their lived experience of what they're going through go deeper on the two types of wealth that you mentioned. So for me, that incident, when he told me, why should I live in a cage like you? I think in that moment, I realized I was living in a cage. At four, I was like, okay, I live in this box. I live in this box called a house. And he lives out and he sees all these things. And you don't need money for that. It's there. And that was like a defining moment. It's like you don't need money for so many experiences. Yeah. You don't need money. You know, people say data is the new oil. I say conversation is the original oil. Conversation is the original oil. Conversation is the original oil. Where does the data come from? The data's collected because people do things. Before that data could be collected, people do things. Before that, they used to talk to each other. And that's where you got, you know, the real data. Or the real oil came from conversation. Conversation is free. So that for me was spiritual. That was like, when I say spiritual, I don't mean religious. I just mean like freely available for us to dip into and take wealth from as opposed to, you know, material wealth, which is all driven by money. And I think that's when I also realized that money is a construct. It's a construct. It's a way to do things. But actually, and this is another thing that I would say for anyone in their first thousand days, if you are counting the money, mm -hmm. I almost think you're running your business the wrong way. I, I think you need to be thinking, am I providing a service that mm -hmm. is valuable? And if I am, the money will flow. Yeah. 
And I've always run businesses based on that. But that, that, that's so hard because you're bleeding every day. Mentally. Yeah. Uh, so this is what I'd say, yeah. financially. Yeah. Yeah. But again, too many people say, I need to raise funds. I, I say to people, like, your best way of raising funds is increasing your revenue. Oh, but I need marketing budgets for that. Actually, there's a lot of things you can do free. You, there's a lot of things that you can do if you're smart and you get smart people around you, you get interns around you. There's a lot of things you can do free. And, and I think that's how everyone, I mean, I was hungry when I started my first business. We did not have money. I was hungry and I, I just more. went out. Tell me more about your first business and this hunger. Um, yeah. So, so. The first business was... This is the one you sold this when is you were one. Uh, 27. I, actually, yeah. if I think back, the first entrepreneurial ventures were very much in my teenage years. Hmm. But, but let me, let me like go what? to this first. Oh, gosh. In my teenage years, I set up a youth club because there was no place that my parents would let me go to. Right? They were like, no, no, you can't go there. There'll be boys. And I'm like, Ma, you know, come on. I went to an all-girls school. So they were... Absolutely terrified that I would get distracted by boys. I think it was worse doing that to me because then there was the curiosity factor, right? Yeah. But I realized that if you can't beat them, you've got to join them. So my parents used to go to the Hindu society and they were happy with us going to the Hindu society and they were happy with us meeting friends at the Hindu society. So I thought, okay, this is great. What about if under the auspices of the Hindu society, hmm. I create a youth club for the Hindu youth to meet. Hmm. It wasn't any kind of like real religious thing. It was really just to get, you know, be able to meet people. And so I made a, a pitch to, you know, the elders of the society. And I said, look, I'd like to start this youth club. The reason I want to do it is because then we can do things on Diwali and Holi, you know, because there was this big event that used to happen and we could put on dances and we could put on plays. And they were like, Haha, Bidda, that's a very good idea. Mm. So then, you know, they encouraged me and I, you know, kind of wrote some stuff, got some friends together, started handing out leaflets to all the young people who came to the Hindu society, got them to send out to their friends at school and ask them to come. And before we knew it, we had a community of 40 or 50 people. Mm. We got funding from the government at that time. Somebody had said, you know, they're giving ethnic minority grants. And we got funding from the government to go and buy bean bags and, you know, games so that we could set up a little room and all of this stuff. So yeah, it was, I think that was my first kind of real entrepreneurial venture. But when I moved to Eastern Europe, I moved to Bucharest in Romania oh, and I was working for Ernst & Young. And within a year, I was really burning out because we were doing audit work, due diligence work. There were a lot of companies coming into Romania to buy Romanian companies. And this was back in the mid-90s, right? Mid, mid to late. It was 96, 97. And the work was really tough because my staff, and I had about 20 or 30 of them, didn't really understand what they were doing. They were, Romanian accounting was in a way like Indian accounting. It was very tax-based and law-based law and rules-based. And international financial reporting. By tax based, you mean compliance based? Compliance based. Going by the books. Right, going by the books. Okay, okay. Whereas the foreign companies that were coming in were trying to work out, you know, will this business be successful? Will we, you know, be able to make profits on this business? 
which is very different from looking at the compliance side. So with these assets, what's the maximum amount of revenue that we could generate? How many people would we need? And, you know, what kind of funding would we need to do that? So I was doing a lot of that work and my staff didn't understand how to do that at all. So I was spending about 40 hours a week teaching them and then another 40 to 60 hours actually doing the accounting work. So I was burning out rapidly. So one of my friends who I worked with, a guy called Mike Turner that I Oh, my whole entrepreneurial street too. He said to me, he, he's an American and he couldn't say Vandana. They used to go, Vandana, I think we should, you know, you're really good at teaching. Uh-huh. Why don't we set up a training center? And I was burnt out by this stage. And I thought, gosh, that would be, because then I could leave working a hundred hours a week and I could just teach. And that would be a lot of fun because the other pressure with doing business valuations is the company, the Romanian company would be saying, you need to show us bigger. And no, sorry, you would need to, you need to show us so that we get the best price. And the American companies would be saying, no, we want to get the lowest price. So there was all this tension between, yeah. you know, bigger valuation, less valuation and all of this, which was very stressful for a 26 year old. <laughs> I was exhausted by it all. So I really liked this idea. So I went and spoke to my boss and said, would you mind if I took six months off because I'm exhausted mm-hmm. and I can't do this? But if you send your people to me, mm-hmm. it, would, it would work for you, right? And these are my prices, you know, would you consider this? And he said, look, you've been brilliant. I trust you. So yes, I would. And if it doesn't work out, you yeah. can always come back. Yeah. So I was really, really happy with that. So was I, that like a one-shot conversation? Or was it like you had to warm him up to that? It, it happened over a few over weeks. A few. I said, look, I, I have to leave. I'm exhausted. Yeah. But this is what I would like to do. And he said, yeah. And he said, you know, you come with me. So every Friday night, we used to go to this British-Romanian group that was set up by the British Embassy. And we used to go and have drinks. And Gary, my boss at the time at Ernst & Young, he said to me, oh, you should go and you should tell the British-Romanian group what you're doing. Because there might be more people there that might be interested. And so I started going, and this is what I mean about being hungry. I spoke to anyone and everyone. This is what we're doing. This is the training we're doing. This is the challenge. Your people, are your, and I would say to them, are your people kind of too bookish when it comes to, you know, accountancy? And they go, yeah, it's really difficult to get them to understand. And I said, well, what I'm doing is I'm running courses to make it less bookish. And this is the experience that I've got. And they're like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, we'll send you five people. We'll send you eight people. And within a year, we had so many mm-hmm. that we got bought out by a listed company that's oh, yeah. all uh, our um, revenues going up. And uh, within a year, they bought us out and they set up an international division. And they said, look, you've done it in Romania. Can you go and do this in Poland and Hungary and other countries? And I was 28. I bought out my company. I'd got money in the bag. <laughs> I had an ego the size of Bangalore. Yeah. And I was like, you know. <laughs> no, I'm about to hear the next part where she loses it all. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is the thing. Yeah. You know, I thought Romania was, you know, when they said, okay, go do this in Poland. I thought Poland was going to be just like Romania. But that's like saying Bangalore is the same as Mumbai. Right. <laughs> you know, not. That's not at all. Not. And so when I went to Poland, Poland was like, no, this is not going to work. 
Too you much know, of resistance. You're very resistant. I faced ageism. I faced racism. I faced sexism. I faced every ism you could think of. You know, um, positionism. I mean, it was crazy. I'd walk into meetings and people would say, where's your boss? And I'd be like, no, I'm the managing director of the international division. And they're like, no, no, bring your boss. And then we'll or they would yeah. say, ah, oh, you know, you're Indian. What would you know? Or they'd say, ah, oh, your experience is from Romania. Poland's so different to Romania. Or, ah, oh, your experience is from England. Poland is so different to England. I mean, it, Poland has changed a lot, but back in the late 90s, that's what it was like. Well, boys and girls, while you're building local and selling globally, these are aspects that will prop up. So you have to adjust your story. Yeah. You have to really listen. You really have to understand those small nuances and, and make those changes. Go deeper on that. So, for example, in Poland, when I went to see clients, you know, all they could see was what wouldn't work. What I was very lucky to do was bump into a couple of women, actually, in Eastern Europe who were working for multinationals and that told me, just listen, just listen to them. Listen to what challenges they had. And that's really what I did. I started listening to the challenges that they had. So, and the challenges weren't any different. The challenges were, you know, my, my staff find it difficult to relate to the business side as opposed to the tax and the compliance side. It's the same thing. But when I was saying it, they didn't want to agree with me. But once they said it, then it was like, oh yes, so that's very different in Poland. So how about we co-create a cu curriculum? that really fits with your needs, you know? So it was, it was really listening to where they had problems. How did you get them to open up from them shutting you right off the bat? Oh, you're an Indian. Oh, you're a woman. Oh, you don't have a boss. Oh, shit, you're the boss. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get them from there to open up? Because we're still talking about the book because this book is a lot about listening and challenging the status quo mm. and navigating your way around. So how did you get them to open up? In Poland... Actually, the way I got them to open up was by connecting with somebody senior who understood what I was doing, who was an expat, mm -hmm. who really understood what I was doing, understood what I'd achieved in Romania, and who was having similar problems in Poland. Somebody took a shot at you, shot yeah. with you. Yeah. So, how did you locate this person? So, this was where networking like trial and really error, like comes in. Badging, no. No? Networking came in big time here. I went to a Polish British event. So, in Romania, the right room. Yes. Being in the right room and knowing how to get to people who understood you first and then would put you in front of the right people. And that was just purely by chance. I saw an advert for a business mixer with the Polish, in, uh, it was the Polish British Chamber of Commerce. And I went there and there happened to be some British people and they were really interested in what I'd achieved in Romania. And they said, you should come in and talk to our company. And because they were in the room with me, Polish equivalent or counterpart had to listen to me. And, they, and then because the British person was involved all the way through, 
Remember, this was the 90s. It was a very, very different time. Then the polls started warming up to me. They really saw that the British person respected me, was asking interesting questions, and that gave them the confidence to say, actually, she does know what she's doing. So it really was a networking story. And I, I would, I give my career I, to networking, which I call ecosystem building, actually. You're, you you're building, me. you're building an ecosystem. When, when, when you first see a person, you're kind of like, how do I get in touch with them? How do they, how can I say something that resonates? The key is to turn faces into friendships. Hmm. That's the key. So I never go in trying to sell business. I just go in trying to get to know someone. Just, you know, who are you? Where have you come from? What are your personal challenges? What are your business challenges? And I'm not even thinking about my business and how I can put my business right. in. I'm thinking, actually, is there anything from, mm -hmm. is there anyone that I know that could be helpful? Is there anything that I've learned over the years that could be useful for this going person? To gift. Yeah. So it's all about the giving, not the taking. I, I get that, and I'm big on that. How do you transition from the initial curiosity mm. to a friendship and to asking for business? How do you do that? I, I, so this is what's really interesting. I think I've rarely asked for business. What, I, what happened is somebody said to me, oh, I've got this really big challenge with my staff at the moment. And I would go, oh, that's really interesting. So... So-and-so company in Romania had this challenge. And then they'd be like, so what did they do? And, and then I'd say, this is what they did. And then they'd be, oh, that's really interesting. How did they do that? And I, I'd then say, well, we, we put, it, put in a solution. And this is what we did. So I'll give you, I'll give you a real-life example. And it's okay to talk about this because... I, so I do a lot of work for Tata Sons. And it was a leadership program for their mid-managers. And it's called Blue Mint. And they have a lot of really amazing faculty that come from all over the world to, to give this program. And one of them rang me up and said, you know, our challenge is that we have all these brilliant speakers coming to speak, but it's difficult for our participants to know what to take in. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's always a challenge. They need to know what's critical, what's going to help them in the future. And, you know, they want, they should also know what are the anecdotes that could help them in the future. Yeah. And they said, okay, so how do they do that? And I said, oh, I have something called a values framework and values, V-A-L-U-E-S stands for different things. And, you know, V, v is about values. So what value have you extracted from that talk? The E is where was the emotional connect, for example? And they said, oh, do you think you could come in and run a session where you go through that values framework? Now, I wasn't doing it to sell myself. I was just saying what you need to do as an organization is teach your people. This is how you distill the essence of, you know, what somebody else is saying. And then they said, could you come and help with that? And I said, yes. So that's, that's the kind of thing that you need to be able to do. So these conversations and you look for those pain points or gaps. Yeah. Very intriguing. 
how do you maintain friendships? Because I'm sure you have thousand friends too, like one of the chapters here says. <laughs> <laughs> how do you maintain friendships? So, because I have ADHD, it's actually a blessing and a boon. Uh, so ADHD is attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity disorder. The Real quick, how yeah. different are you from somebody who's not with ADHD? So people can understand. People think ADHD is, I don't know how they understand it, but quick differentiation. If you could make it alive of the... Yeah. So, so what most people do in, in their brains, right? You know, we have these conversations with ourselves. And normally you start on one thing and it might be, oh, look at the weather today. And then you'll go to, therefore, I need to wear warm clothes because it's cold today and I need to catch, I need to take my umbrella with me. And then you might go to, oh, damn, I left my umbrella at my friend's house. That's very logical. Yeah. ADHD, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, the weather's like this today. And then it's like, I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner tomorrow. And then it's, and, you know... I mean, it's really random. Your brain goes to different things, but there is a connection. So what's happened is your brain has gone, the weather is not good today, and therefore the chances are I'll stay at home today, which means I'm likely to go out tomorrow. So therefore tomorrow evening, what will I have for dinner? But your brain has missed that middle conversation Correct. and gone straight to what am I having dinner? Okay, so that doesn't make much sense in itself. But what happens with often with people who have ADHD is you make connections between different things that you wouldn't normally relate to. And that comes back to your question of how do you keep in touch with people? What will happen is I will have a conversation with, let's say, you, and there will be one thing from this conversation, like a thousand days. Mm -hmm. And when I go to my next client, I will see a combination and I will, I will probably say to that client, what's your employee's journey in the first thousand days? Where will they get to? Where would you want them to get to in the first thousand days? So my mind has taken one concept mm -hmm. and it's moved it. And then how do I keep in touch with people? Then what will happen is, I will think of somebody who, who will say to me, you know, I have a challenge with my employees who have been with me for more than two years. And I'll suddenly go, okay, so two years is about 700 days. So I'll think about, and then I'll come back to you and say, Bonit, what are the challenges that people actually have in at 700 days as opposed to a thousand mm -hmm. days? And I'll take that information and I'll email that person and go, Oh, I've been doing some research on you were saying that there are challenges after two years. This is what entrepreneurs face. How can we correlate that to what your staff are going through? Hmm. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. you're matching the dots. Ways, I'm, yeah. I'm matching, I'm connecting yeah. the dots and I'm also enriching those dots. It's not just a dot anymore. It's like a, it's starting to be like, like a, a mosaic system. piece yeah. and I'm starting to put mosaic pieces together. It's intriguing that you keep your ears open for people and then you try to connect and create or solve this puzzle that they are in, right? Yes. Is there any other good. way that you still keep friendships? That's one way. Any other way? I mean, I am, I'm very religious about being in touch with people. 
like I'm always in touch with people. I travel a lot. So I make sure that when I'm on, you know, sort of a, a taxi ride, I know a lot of people go, oh, I listen to Audible and I read this or I'm listening to oh, this. I listen to the podcast. <laughs> I'm listening to the podcast. Apologies. I am always talking to people. Yeah. Always talking. That's my number one competition. They are my <laughs> phone they, call. They are, they are. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, you know, uh, Deepak Barek of HDFC, he absolutely says the way he's built his businesses is through conversations. He says he hardly Go ever deeper on that. He he hardly ever watches the news. He talks to people and he asks them what's happening in the news that's interesting for you. And he'd rather get their perspective on what's happening in the news rather than watch all the crazy television stations we've got and hear the news. So so that's what he does. And then he'll say, Oh, and then he'll talk to a third person and he'll go, Oh, so and so this morning was saying this is what's gonna impact, you know, what's happening in China and the house price is falling. He thinks it's because of this. What do you think? And then because he's talking to people of a certain ilk and understanding, he's getting the best views yeah. that a podcast couldn't, no, no offense, yeah. couldn't possibly give you all of those yeah. views. Or you a would have to know. Somebody wouldn't, yeah, yeah. or a readout wouldn't. So, so I think that's, that's the way I've always done it as well. That's not to say I don't listen to podcasts. Obviously, if it's 11.30 or 12 at night, I'm not going to be calling up friends unless they're in a different country. But I, So I will do that as well. But the vast majority of my time is WhatsApp messages or, or t talking to people. But it's always about moving the conversation forward. I will never send you know, just a, a fun meme if there isn't a reason Relation. behind sending that meme. Intriguing. We'll get to something interesting called unspoken dialogues because you're talking about conversations yes. in a moment. Before that, a lot of people tell me after like three or four days or a week of no WhatsApp activity between somebody they've met at a networking event or a, a friend who's not yet a friend, right? They are still acquaintance. Yes. This is awkwardness. Yes. Right? How do you break that? Curiosity. Or Curiosity. The, the thing to break. So think about this. You can have two. Very different people. What you have to do, and it goes back to maths, is you have to find the lowest common denominator between the two. What makes them resonate? And it doesn't have to be business. And in fact, I'm somebody, so I, I feel that, you know, if you go to different countries in the old days, you need, you needed different currencies. Yeah. Without those different currencies, it wouldn't work. I think with different people, you need different conversation currencies and you need different things to talk about. So for example, sport is a really great currency talking about the Commonwealth Games at the moment. Yeah. yeah. To somebody who's into sport, that works. Now, the thing is to talk to me about sports is useless because I'm not a sporty person and yeah. I've never been a sporty yeah, person. I followed it either. I, and I haven't really, I mean, I know the big things and as much as I love India, I don't think I'll ever be truly Indian because I don't like cricket. Well, it's, I don't like cricket, but I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not a put the cricket <laughs> the way 99% of no, people I are. I relate with you. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so then, I, you know, I look for other things that I can talk to someone about. The weather is a really good one, you know, just, just saying to people, what's the weather like where you are? You know, all, initial conversations. Initial conversations, right? Are, are things around the weather, around hobbies, 
But once I've got to know what somebody's hobbies are, what they really like, traveling, for example, or, or trekking, for example, invariably, so it's never the business thing as the number one thing. It's more about them as people. Then it's always about, oh, I suddenly remembered that I went on this trek in Tacona. Have you ever been to Tacona? And then sending them a quick link. You know, so something that they care about. It's all, you know, it's always about what do they care about? What's important for them? Interestingly, you shine so much light on them. Yes. When do you allow somebody to shine light back <laughs> on you? Unless on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know how there's laws. Because I've been um, accused by people yes. saying, Puneet, you're always focusing on me. Yeah. <laughs> when will you let me focus on you? So, so uh, but the thing is, you, you're a podcaster, so you will always do that. Yeah, but this is how I am naturally, like all the time. Yes. But and so are you. Here's the yeah. thing. Like in physics, there are laws, like the law of gravity. I think in conversation, there are laws. And I think one of the biggest laws is, if I ask you a question like, how are you? You will say, I'm fine, or this and the other. And then you go, how are you? It's natural. Law of reciprocity, yeah. There's reciprocity. So that's what happens. That's what happens in conversation. If you are genuinely in touch with that other person and you allow pause, will naturally ask you questions. For somebody with ADHD and endless curiosity, yeah. the pause is a very awkward thing. Do you feel that? No, not anymore. <laughs> not there, there aren't. Uh, I mean, there's very rarely pauses. Correct. You just get into conversations. There's always something and you just follow the resonation and the frequency of the conversation. So, you know, it might go something like this. Oh, so Puneet, you like trekking. Have you ever been to Tacona? And you'll say, no, I, no, I haven't. And I'll say, oh, I took, oh my gosh, Puneet, I have to tell you, I took six kids under the age of 14. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine what that was like? Have you ever been with mm -hmm. kids that age? So that would right. be my, and, and I'm genuinely curious, like, have you ever been with kids that age? Like on six, a trek, on a mountain, no. Yeah, but have you ever spent time with kids yeah, for sure. that age? Yeah. So what do you like about about spending time with kids that age? Yeah, it's uh, their energy. It's it's constant challenge to match their energy, to keep them captured. Otherwise, you lose them very easily. So what do you do? What did you do when you were with them? To well, like when I was with match like 14 year olds? Their, no, yeah, when you were with the 14 year olds, how did you oh. kind of match their energy? Use the spontaneity to come up with something, like teach them a wavy high five. They're so used to a high five. I'm like, yeah. high five is going wavy high five. They're like, what's a wavy high five? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. So what's happened is we've now got into an engaging conversation. And I'd say to you, so what's a wavy high five? Okay, you're still shining light on me. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, agreed. Yeah. How do you let somebody else shine light back so, at you? So then what happens is, if you naturally pause, you will find that you, you'll find that the person will just go, so what was it like on that trip? Mm. You know, they will naturally get back to you, even if they don't. So what? So what if they don't? Just keep shining the light on them because you learn so much. So I, I think it's okay. and. I, d I don't ever expect them to, but naturally it just happens. And then at the end of that, the other thing is people feel heard. They feel heard and they remember you. 
for making them, them feel out. heard. And so when you bring them up the next time, but, they yeah. want to have the conversation with you. And I don't do this in a manipulative way at all. I just do this because I'm genuine. And people are very, very astute. They know if you're doing this in a manipulative way. Correct. They'll pick you know, up on they it. They pick it up. Yeah. And, and so I don't, you know. And so that's what I do. Yeah. We are the 7.45 minute mark. Fascinatingly, we haven't spoken about mm -hmm. the hero of this book. Even one. <laughs> I was listening to your podcast with uh, Cyrus last evening. Uh, on my way to the tango class and I was like Alik was name dropped like 15 times in the first 5 minutes <laughs> incredible so far in like an hour we have actually yeah. one <laughs> yeah maybe the hero of this episode is you oh, I'm gosh. happy no. I'm happy that <laughs> that's the case we can always do another podcast done because <laughs> 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 you're still talking about conversations talk to me about the idea of unspoken dialogues. So Alec Badamsi was arguably India's greatest advertising icon. He was known as the brand father of advertising. So if you go and talk to your mums and dads and ask them about Cherry Charlie, who is this shoe polish guy, or Lalitaji from Surf Excel, the one that you'll all know is Hamara Bajaj. And the MRF Tire Man. These were all Alex's creations. He was such an innovative, disruptive thinker that if anyone needed a brand, they would come to him and he would help them establish their brand. Aside from that, he was also a theater maverick. So he was a theater director, he was a theater actor. He was somebody who spotted proteges. Very, very early on. So Rani Skruwana, for example, came out of him. J Jim Saab, uh, Dalip Dahil, even people like Sham Benegal came out of his stable. These were all people that he nurtured. And Kabir Bedi, uh, Sabira Merchant, all of these people were people that he nurtured and took onto the big stage. Terence Lewis, Shamit Davar. And he just had this incredible ability to see something that you couldn't even see in yourself. And he had a way of nurturing you to develop it in a way that you didn't even know you were developing it. So it was, I mean, he was one of the most incredible human beings. In fact, I would say he is the most incredible human being I was privileged to spend yeah. time with. And I got to spend a lot of time with him for three or four years before he passed away. And with his recordings. And yes, 175 <laughs> hours of two ADHDers speaking. <laughs> so it was absolutely crazy, our conversations. Yes. Talk to me about unspoken dialogue. So it really started with Alec telling me that people have a lot of things pent up inside them that they don't talk about. And he actually made me realize this firsthand because even though I met Alec in my 40s, mm. I had, I was still scarred from my childhood of the patriarchal, hierarchical, you know, living where 
girls do not talk, do not speak, you know, can be seen but not heard and shouldn't really even be seen. So that was very heavy in me because I moved to Eastern Europe in my 20s and then to India in my 30s. I'd, I didn't really grow up with commu- a community. I kept changing communities. So I was still really discovering myself in my 40s. And Alec really taught me to breathe. And what I mean by that is where we talk about the unspoken dialogues. I, I want you to imagine, for example, that we as human beings are like balloons. Mm-hmm. And what happens is we have all the stresses and tensions that we keep inside that we don't talk to anyone about, right? It might be, am I good enough? Or I did this wrong? Or people are going to say this? Or what will people think? These are all things we hold inside and we don't really talk to anyone about them. So we are like this balloon that is constantly expanding inside. And then all of a sudden, some incident happens. And, and we just freak out and it's like the balloon pops. Yeah. And, and we just completely crash. And then we're so embarrassed. We're just like, Oh my God. I can't believe I just broke down. You know, what Alex says is, what if you could bring in places where you could speak almost unknown with an Mm -hmm. anonymity and speak those unspoken dialogues? It's like literally having a balloon. And putting sellotape on the balloon and then pricking it with a pin. Because mm-hmm. if you do that, then the balloon naturally goes down oh, yeah? very, very slowly. It's not like it pops yeah. because you've kept the surface tension and you just pop, you know, you, you kind of make on a hole in the balloon. On the sellotape. On the sellotape. And it goes down very, very slowly. That's what happens when you get the opportunity to speak your unspoken dialogue. And with Alec, I had so many opportunities to speak unspoken dialogues. I remember once telling him I was so upset because I'd made a bad financial decision. And I was like, oh my God, chartered accountant. And I still did that. And that was so stupid. And I went to him and he knew immediately something was wrong. And he said, tell me. And I said, no, you're going to think so badly of me. And he said, Vandana, just tell me what you did. And I told him, and he goes, Don, that's nothing. Have you heard of so-and-so? And he named a very big financial advisor in Mumbai. And he goes, that guy swindled me out of And I was like, what? And he goes, yes, and this only happened 10 years ago. Said, Don't worry about it. Just forget about it and move on. Mm-hmm. And that just gave me unconsciously permission to just breathe again and say, wow, even people like Alec make mistakes and they just move on. And then he told me, you know, Ronnie did this and -and so-and-so did this. And I was like, oh my God, I don't feel so stupid anymore. So that's what an unspoken dialogue does. It just makes you feel so much better. So Alec ran these spaces where he encouraged people to just talk about something that was going on inside them in anonymity, and then he would take that dialogue and make it into a play. Mm. So he did these plays called The Unspoken Dialogues, and he encouraged the audience to stay behind and speak their unspoken dialogues, and they did. Beautiful. It's like a focused group 
coming up with real life emotions and anecdotes and stories however it heals the people who express it out Absolutely. and those who witness it and it's almost like having therapy yeah. but group therapy but anonymity how can co-founders use unspoken dialogues to deepen their relationships oh gosh i i think well founders need more than anything having been one and being someone who mentors hundreds of entrepreneurs and over the years probably thousands i i would say you need to get groups of you together to just speak about what you're going through and every now and again bring in somebody external to just help you see through it there's a lot of things as a founder i think about my last company so i've had huge successes but i've had huge failures as well and i would say my last company to me well it wasn't a particularly great financial success it was a success in many other ways but i didn't speak up when i should have i didn't speak to people when i was going through difficulties and i should have and i think that's what founders need i think they should form little groups of four or five of them and just say we're going to be totally brutally honest with each other and then we're going to link into the bigger community and we're going to find a mentor who will come in and not judge us why why four or five is that the uh, I, magic I number create, that works i think you Half create psychological safety with four or five i think any more than that and it's kind of like i don't know that person so i'm not sure that i can speak so i think four or five is a good number but you need to meet regularly you can't have oh i'm really busy today so i'm not going to meet it has to be kind of you know systematically we're going to do this at a regular time the only person i find in parallel with ali is probably bill campbell the trillionaire coach or the trillion dollar coach it's fascinating how he has nurtured so many people yeah. in parallel yeah. Yeah. it's like a ecosystem of very similar to how his mind functions <laughs> well well i think yeah. ali will give give you an analogy for this i remember walking into so alec and i were in a meeting and both of us were very tired when i walked in and by the end of it we were like on fire and i said alec you know you are like a battery charger you know you just recharge me and he got really angry and he said i am not and i was like i really upset him you know and he goes i am not like a battery charger how dare you and i was like I'm really sorry and he goes no darling and then dramatic pause and he bursts out laughing <laughs> he goes you and I it's like we are magnetizers we magnetize people he said the problem with a battery is a battery will get recharged and then it will empty and you will have to recharge it again he said you and I are like magnetizers once you're magnetized you share that magnetism with right. other people and that's what people like bill campbell do once they magnetize one founder that founder is so magnetized his whole team becomes magnetized their whole teams become magnetized etc etc beautiful butterfly effect yes yeah. like my my photos not in the book and my names in small letters and all of that and yeah. that's because you know for me the book is a homage to alec it's you know i may have put the book together i may have written the majority of the book but in in terms of you know paraphrasing his words 
but this it, it, this is him and it's his glory and I'm just backing him up. That was really important for me. So I noticed that you've had a challenge with patriarchy for so long, correct? Yes. And then you collaborated with somebody who's a father figure for so many people. Mm -hmm. And he comes across as somebody who has flexibility, but also has very strong opinions and yes. point of views. Yes. How did he not trigger the patriarchy? Or how would both of you found a common ground? Alec was really amazing. And Shabana Azmi talked about this as well. Alec is very good at reading people. And he knows what will work and what won't. And he knew about my relationship with my father. And so he knew that if he ever tried to intimidate me or argue with me in a derogatory way, that I would run a mile. He knew that. And so he was very gentle with me all the way through this process. He was very gentle, very respectful. And I've seen him work in the theatre, so I know how he correct, can be. Correct, correct, correct. Can, he's like the you know, alpha he's, on. The... Yeah, absolutely. But with me, he was yeah. not. He knows how to get the best out of people. So with Shabana as well, Shabana said, I can only work with you, Alec, if you don't shout at me. If you shout at me, I will go to pieces. So he never shouted at But that's, that's at somebody who expressed how she wanted to be addressed yeah. or treated. I um, never did, how did that. Yeah, that's, I never did that. Yeah. But he saw me. He saw me, he saw all of my playfulness, my creativity. You know, uh, in fact, a friend of mine said the other day, you are, uh, do you realize you are Alex's last protege? And I was like, I am so not. <laughs> but, but he, you know, this friend said to me, look, he could have collaborated with anyone, but he chose you. And there was one stage where I said to him, Alex, I'm in the process of selling my company. So for six months, I can't work with you. So if you want to find someone else, please feel free. And he wrote straight back and he said, no, you are the only person I want to write this book with. You understand my mind. And we just have this brilliant equation where he managed to ignite me and I managed to ignite him. Was it something that just clicked or was it a process that took a while? No, it clicked. It clicked with the first meeting. Okay, so this is this is like a one in a thousand. No, but Bonit, yeah. it's actually not a one in a thousand. This is this is the honest truth. And I had a similar experience with Richard Branson. Actually, mm -hmm. when I knew that I was going to meet Alec, I read up about him. I read everything about him, and I thought to myself, if I tell him I'm a chartered accountant, he's going to go to sleep. I need to be able to tell him something else about me that's going to pique his interest so that I can keep in touch with him because that was important to me. I knew he was someone I wanted to keep in touch with. And I also knew that there were thousands of people that wanted to keep in touch with him. So I might get one meeting, but maybe right. not any more than that. And so that's when I kind of thought about all the things that I'd done in the past and what would interest him the most. And I realized that he had actually done a lot for women and women's rights. And I also realized that he was the ultimate disruptive thinker. And the biggest thing that I had done was, you know, I created all these planets for my science fiction books. And I decided I wanted to talk to him about a planet that had always been 80% female right from the beginning. So how would the world be in a planet that was always 80% female? Because you would not have work 
from nine to five every day. You just wouldn't because mothers right. would just go, yeah. that doesn't work for us. So how else would it change? Would you, would you work from Monday to Friday or would you just have half days every day? A planet which was 80% female dominated would be so different. Would we have abused the environment like this? I don't think so. Nobody will ever know, but these are really good yeah. questions to ask. And that really caught Alex's imagination. And he said to me, you should never have been an accountant. You should have been in advertising. Yeah. And that was the start of the relationship. You know, that one thought of she thinks like that, I need to, I need to get to know her more, yeah. was what really started it. It's fascinating how you didn't pick the or other common points, but picked project to talk about initially that you'd worked on. Yeah. 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 Because I thought ADHD was the lowest hanging fruit where you could no, first get out off. Then you pick something else. I didn't even realize he was ADHD at that oh, time. Okay. Right. Before I met him and talked to him, because really? if you look at his advertising campaigns, they're very focused. So I knew he was a disruptive thinker, but there are many disruptive thinkers out there that are not ADHD. So I didn't know that. It wasn't until we started talking that I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. This is a guy that goes at a thousand miles an hour and he good for my brain. Oh my goodness. You know, where can they find the book and why should they read it? You all can find the book on Amazon. It's called Let Me Hijack Your Mind, written by Alec Badamsi with Vandana Saksenaporia. Why should you read it? Quite honestly, we have outsourced our thinking. We have, over the years, outsourced our thinking to religion. Religion has taught us how to think, what is good, what is bad. Government, society, the media has taught us how to think. They've taught us what's beautiful, what's not beautiful, how we should dress, how we should talk, what universities we should go to. And, and it's all rubbish, if you ask me. And rubbish is a very mild word for what I would normally say. So... What the book does is it gets you to bring back your thinking, gets you to hijack your thinking away from those outside outsourced sources and bring it back to yourself and make you think about actually what's important to me, what resonates with me, what changes do I want to make in my life that's going to impact the rest of the world. Because this is really important. We will not have the world will survive, but humanity will not survive unless all of you out there make the difference. You're the only ones that can save humanity. It's not about saving the planet. The planet will survive, but the question is, will humanity? And humanity will if we think differently. And like Einstein says, you can't solve today's problems with the same thinking that was used to create those problems. We need to be able to think differently. And this book is going to get you to think differently. Well, I'm building on to a quote in one of the chapters. This book will keep your brain on its toes. <laughs> so please go check it out. Let me hijack your mind. Restart your life with freedom. The links will be in the show description. I can't recommend it enough. One night it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the questions and helping me also articulate some of the things that have happened in my life. No way this was an old unspoken conversation. It was. It was an unspoken dialogue. dialogue. It really was. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. On that note, 
go and make some galapao. <laughs>